All right, well, good morning. My name is Marshall, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and it's a joy to be with everybody today. It's not lost on me that none of you are here to, to see me. Um, and uh, this, is, this, is the, this is the tough job right here, is uh, just warming you all up for the show that we're about to have. Um, as we speak, there's a, a bunch of kids downstairs wearing itchy costumes and all excited and jittery to be able to perform for you. One of those kids is a three-year-old shepherd. Uh, his name is Soren. He's my, uh, my middle child. Uh, and we took away his staff this morning for everybody's safety. And... Um, but he, he has a knife and a cleaver, like a toy knife and a cleaver in his belt uh, for the protection of the sheep and because that's what we called a compromise. So if you're wondering why one of the shepherds has a knife, that's the pastor's kid. Um, I want to just take a few moments and, and share with you a little bit of really what is at the center of what it is that we're celebrating this week. Just a moment ago, we lit the fourth Advent candle, the candle of love. And what the Bible teaches us is that love really is at the very heart of this Christmas story. Jesus didn't come in a vacuum. He didn't just sort of come to knock out uh, a quick job and then get back up to heaven for all eternity. No, he, he came for a purpose. He came on mission to rescue and redeem all of humanity, and he did it with the motivation of the love of the Father. John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 was one of the first verses that I ever put to memory when I was a young kid. And at the time, back in the 90s, it felt like, uh, it felt like one of the, those passages in the Bible that everybody in the world already knew. I mean, you saw it, you know, people holding signs with John 3.16 at football games. And it feels almost cliche to reference it now. Yet in my experience, less and less people have any understanding of what this verse says. And here's what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Now, when you hear that verse read, I think that many people today might be surprised by the words of John. The message that's often assumed is not one of a, with a, a God of longing love, but rather that God sent Jesus into the world to show people how bad they are and to condemn them. The message that many Christians convey or even sadly live out is more of one that says people suck and there's a way for you to be less sucky. And if you can't be less sucky, Jesus loves you anyway. But this passage reminds us that the starting point is not all about how messed up people are. The starting point is God's love. God sent his son into the world because he loves the world. And he sent him to save the world, not to condemn it. Theologian Jürgen Moltmann says that we should think of the Christian life as a loving and loved life. I love that description. The basis of our new birth is rooted in the love of the Father. He writes, in God himself, or if God himself becomes a human being... And if Christ eternal appears among mortal men and women on this earth, then the human race is wanted by God. And every individual and every child is desired and wanted and expected. 
Right through the night of terror, the terror of evil, God's affirmation of life becomes visible. There is no reason to deny life, to despair of this world, or to give up on oneself. Even the life burdened with sin and given over to death will be accepted by God and recognized and loved as the life he has created. I mean, what a theological mystery. What a profound paradox to think of this holy God who is completely all-sufficient within himself, who has zero lack, and yet he is described as the God who longs and pursues and who is lovesick for his people. And this is who God is. One of Jesus' closest friends who most understood this idea wrote, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Other translations of this actually say, we have come to rely on and believe or trust in and believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So you see, we cannot talk about the coming of Jesus without talking about love. John writes that God is love, not that God is loving. No, God is love. It's who he is. And the good news about Christmas is that this love has come for us. But if we're honest, this love is not always an easy thing to accept, right? Like some of us really struggle to to accept the love that we read about in the Bible. And though we are desperate for it, I mean that that longing for this love, it's woven into our very DNA. Though we are desperate for it, guilt and shame will, will seek to keep us from experiencing it. It is hard to experience such a gift without feeling somehow indebted or cringing over your own unworthiness. And so then some of us react by trying to merit this love, to pay back this this debt of love. And this is where what we call a religious spirit comes in, you know, trying to, to sort of earn. And it's not usually so overt as to say the words, I am doing this work to earn God's love. No, it's always much more subtle than that. It's a belief that receiving from God means that I need to pay him back through suffering or through obedience to certain kinds of rules, um, or getting a certain number of other people to follow God's rules. But this transactional relationship ends up undermining the very beauty of the love of God. Uh, Danish philosopher and theologian, Soren Kierkegaard, wrote this. He said, let us begin with a little thought experiment. If a lover had done something for the beloved, something so extraordinary, lofty, and sacrificial that we men were obliged to say, this is the utmost one human being can do for another, this certainly would be beautiful and good. But suppose he added, see, now I paid my debt. Would it not be, if I may say it this way, an indecency which ought never to be heard, never in the good fellowship of true love? If, however, the lover did this noble and sacrificial thing and then added, but I have one request, let me remain in debt, would not this be speaking in love? It's a beautiful thought experiment. And if you weren't able to follow it all the way, like, that's totally fair. Like, it took me a while to understand what he was saying here. Let me, tell, let me give it to you in sort of real-world language. Imagine that I wanted to demonstrate my love for my beautiful wife, Carly. We have three kids, five, three, and one. Uh, our house is 
chaotic, to say the least. And let's say that to express my love for her, I made dinner, I prepped everything, I did all of the dishes, made sure the kids ate all of their vegetables, I got them to do it somehow, um, and then I sent her off to a quiet room with a book and a glass of wine and her favorite Tony's chocolates, and I took the kids upstairs and I gave them a bath, and then I got their jammies on, I brushed their teeth, I read them stories, I got them to bed on time, and they even prayed out loud without me having to demand it. <laughs> Imagine that I did all of that. My wife would feel so in love, like, oh my gosh. And everybody would say, Marshall, you're an amazing husband. And then let's say that I went down to her and I was just like, check. Knock that off the list. Glad. Merry Christmas, I guess. Then everybody would be like, you ruined it. You destroyed this beautiful act of love. But if instead I was to say, no, 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 it's my joy to do this for you, please, let me do it again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. That is what this true love is like. You see, love is not an accounting relationship. However much God has loved you so far, he still chooses to remain within the debt of love to you and me and all of humanity. And so any effort that we make to try to repay him is actually to misunderstand the nature of this relationship. It is God's delight to abundantly overflow love in your life over and over and over again. Efforts to merit or repay are a subtle way of trying to get out of, our, get out of debt or even to distance ourselves from this love, this like fiery furnace of love that feels too dangerous to receive. And what the Bible teaches us is that we cannot repay God's love. We can only surrender to it. And when we place our faith in Jesus, the Bible talks about how we are baptized into this love. That we, the language that's used is that we are immersed or we are plunged or we are overcome. We are drenched to being soaked in the love of the Father. It is a thrilling and terrifying venture. It's an act of surrender. And so the difference between striving and surrendering to love is like the difference between exhausting ourselves, treading water, trying to keep our head above the surface, or just leaning back, relaxing, and discovering that you could float all along. And the invitation from Jesus is to stop trying so hard and to trust deeply and receive. It's God's love that has the power to transform us. Not our effort, not his demands. It is his love that transforms the human heart. His love is what speaks to our fears and our loneliness, the fear of rejection and abandonment that so many of us carry. And when this love arrives in our lives, we are suddenly safe and secure. We can be humble and happy in who we are. There is worth to you, not some future version of you, but you right here today because the Father says, I love you. And when we receive the love of God, we are changed, not out of obligation, but in overflow of what has been poured into us. So here we are, it's Christmas time. Advent is the mission that flows from God's love. Jesus' birth and his life and his death and his resurrection all flowed from the Father's heart. And what the Christmas story that we are about to watch the kids perform, what it reminds us of is that the love of God goes beyond these walls and it extends out to all people. It's not reserved just for good people because nobody qualifies for that. 
It's not extended only to an in crowd, a select group. The birth of Jesus deliberately reached beyond such people to show us that the love of God is good news of great joy for all people. And so throughout the story of of Christmas, the people who tend to understand and receive this are those who normally would be considered outsiders beyond sort of the reach of God's love. You see, God chases after a teenager named Mary, and and she is uh, shamed by the rest of the community for being a young, unwed, teenage, pregnant woman. And he loves her. And he, and he goes to these shepherds, these, these working class guys who are sleeping out in fields with sheep in the middle of the night, likely after having a few drinks by the campfire. He goes to these eastern pagan magicians with this message of good news. And all of them respond with wonder and joy and gratitude. While all of those who are back in the city of Jerusalem, at the heart of the power structures, are, quote, troubled. God's love reaches to the depths, finding those that seem farthest from God because his love is for all people. If you feel like you are unworthy of this love, if you feel like God would never be able to reach all the way to how deep and far gone you are, I want to tell you that what the Bible teaches us is that you are specifically the person that he is going after. You are the person who is closest to being disrupted and interrupted by the love and presence of God. Could it be that Jesus was born in a stable rather than a palace just so that we would sense that there is no place God would not go to reach us? In his book, Secrets of the Dark, uh, Frederick Buechner wrote one of my favorite Christmassy quotes. He said, those who believe in God can never in a way be sure of him again. Once they have seen him in a stable, they can never be sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of humankind. If holiness and the awful power and majesty of God were were present in this least auspicious of all events, this birth of a peasant's child, then there is no place or time so lowly and earthbound but that holiness can be present there too. And this means that we are never safe, that there is no place where we can hide from God, no place where we are safe from his power to break into and recreate the human heart because it is just where he seems most helpless that he is most strong and just where we least expect him that he comes most fully. In the story of Jesus' birth, God's love reaches those who are far from him. And the whole of Jesus' life and ministry happened out in the fringes, away from sort of the center of religious power. The place where Jesus did all of his ministry is right where the religious world doesn't understand and the darkness of the world exists. And this is the place where the kingdom of God directly engages the kingdom of darkness. It's where... It's here where the light of God's love breaks in and surprises everyone. And it's here that Jesus invites his people to join him. The places where people seem farthest from God are the very places where God's people are called to go. 
And so if you are a Christian, the goal for your life is to live a life of mission that is rooted in God's love that has overflowed in us. And then we let that love lead us wherever it would take us because love doesn't stay at home. So then, if you are a follower of Jesus, I want to end with two things. Here are two things you are called to. You are called to receive God's love, and you are called to extend God's love. Uh, then, right before Jesus uh, went to the cross, he was having a meal with all of his closest friends, and he was giving them some final words, and he said this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. There is perhaps no greater invitation in the entire universe than this. The love that God the Father lavishes on his perfect son is the same love that is poured out on you and me. And all you have to do is receive it, abide in it, live in it. This is an offer that is so much more than self-help or self-esteem. This is way more than therapeutic religion or mindfulness practices. This is an invitation to a real and personal relationship with God that is intimate. But how do we do this? How do you and I experience such love? If we're honest with ourselves, it takes a certain amount of discipline to remain in God's love. Now, even if you have this mind-bending personal experience, if you don't learn how to remain or abide in it, it'll all be a flash in the pan. And so we need to learn how to make room in our life to be with God and to hear his voice. And it's not easy to do. It takes a lot of practice. We live in a time that Thomas Merton called the time of no room, which is like the perfect description of life in the 21st century, isn't it? The time of no room. Our culture trades in the, cons- in the currency of hurry and busyness and shallowness. Our lives are so full and yet there is still somehow no room for God or even for our own thoughts at times. We are just like stuffing ourselves with noise and distraction and busyness and achievement constantly and yet seem to always find ourselves feeling that emptiness. And God's people are called to live a radically different form of, uh, uh, of life. We are called to be completely different than the way of this world. We are called to slow down, to resist the demands of busyness, and to lean into the presence of God. And it's in these quiet hours where we notice his presence, where we are reminded of his love, and where we hear his voice as a gentle whisper. Henry Nouwen once wrote, every time you listen with great attentiveness to the voice that calls you the beloved, you will discover within yourself a desire to hear that voice longer and more deeply. It is like discovering a well in the desert. Once you have touched wet ground, you want to dig deeper. And so this week, amid all of the festivities, the bustle, the hosting preparation, everything that we're doing, make time to be still and to receive the Father's love for you. And maybe you've never experienced that before. Maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian at all. But what would it look like for you to carve out 30 minutes of time to sit and be still and ask him if he loves you? To quiet your soul long enough to hear the voice that calls you the beloved. And then from the place of receiving, we are then called to extend this gift to others. 
the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians that it's the love of Christ that actually compels us to go out and extend the same gift to other people. As we have received God's love, we are compelled, we are driven to extend it to other people. And so the church today is called to be the bodily representation of God's will on the earth. So wherever Jesus would be if he was present today, that is the place that the church is called to be. And so the question you ask yourself is, where has God called me to be? And how has he called you to extend this love to other people? Where do you live in your neighborhood? Could you be the pastor of your block? Knowing people, praying for people, knowing them by name. At work, do you have eyes to see your coworkers, to invite them to a happy hour, to ask probing questions and introduce them to the love of God? If you're a stay-at-home parent, could you see your vocation as extending the Father's love time and time and time again to these little children? There are people all around us all of the time who God is reaching toward with his love, and there is no length that he won't go to and no depth that he won't sink to in order to love that person. And God wants to reach those people with his love through you and me. So now we're going to transition into a time of celebrating this this gift that God sent us in his son. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I mean, we are overwhelmed at the prospect of your love for your people. We delight and celebrate that Jesus came in the least auspicious of all human events. He came in the darkest, most out-of-the-way place, a stable to be born among animals to show us that your love reaches to every corner of this world. I pray, Lord, for my friends as we, as we prepare for Christmas a week from now. We ask, God, that you would make room in our hearts to be with you, to enjoy you, and to hear you. We love you so much, God. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.